Okay. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh, brother! Not another podcast is an official Apple podcast presented by the Westport Public Library and the Quick Center for the Arts. With me, Migs Burrows, and I'm Trace Burrows, and today we have uh, Nettie Baker on, the daughter of the legendary drummer Ginger Baker. I'm thrilled about this because um, I'm a drummer and I followed his career since like I was 16, way back when they were, he was in Cream. Um, so anyhow, uh, Nettie, you've got three books you've written about uh, your life with Ginger, um, Tales of a Rock Star, um, More Tales of a Rock Star and Full Cream. Do you wanna go in briefly and talk about what, what's covered in each book? Uh, well, the initial book is his autobiography, which I ghost wrote with him in 2009 called Hellraiser. Oh, and that, sorry, you, yeah. can get, you can get that anywhere. And that is his in his own words. But um, obviously I wrote that with him and, you know, spent a lot of time with him uh, as he, you know, he, he recounted his life to me. So it was all very interesting. And then the other one uh, with my book that I'd actually written before that, but it took me another 10 years to get it out, was, is called Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter, which goes, um, it sort of drops backwards and forwards in time, but it's really from uh, 1974 to 1985. And then my more tales is the sort of punk in London, but also that drops back to when Hendrix came to the house, when we got evicted from our house. And uh, and then that goes from 85 to 87. But it also looks forward to the Cream reunion a bit in um, 2005, and that covers Live Aid. And then Full Cream is a book that I did with my publishers, which is... A lot of very rare stuff, family stuff. It's a coffee table book, so uh, that's something slightly different, you know, and it's got some rare uh, archive material that's from our own archive, so stuff people haven't seen that much of before. So, yeah, so it's four books in all, and there's another one coming. So, so like when uh, I told Mix, oh, you agreed to be on the show, Mix sent me this link to a video where Ginger's on, sitting at his drums and he's ranting about you, like really pissed off that you stole his Facebook page. And I, um... uh, Well, the problem that we have with that was that only two people have seen that, luckily, because uh, he, that never came out when he was alive because he knew it was incorrect. And he's oh. actually, we have, uh, we've had problems with the police and the social services. He was under safeguarding from social services three times. So he was basically worked to death. Um, and uh, at that point, he was isolated from his family, left alone, uh, desperate phone calls, police involved, some very, very bad things. So this was to do with people that were around him that caused a lot of problems when they did the tribute for him in London last year as well, behind the scenes, uh, with some, uh, causing some problems to some very famous people indeed. So, uh, you know, I've got lots of cards and lovely things from him. And in fact, very soon to that video, he was actually emailing us saying, you know, he wanted to see us. So uh, oh. he was coerced into that. So that's some part of some very bad things that happened to him at the end of his life, unfortunately. So is that all Kudze? Mm. Is that the name of his fourth wife? Yes, I mean, you can look up. We have a lot of problems with that, but um, now we have actually got some really serious proof, uh, which is going to be coming out quite soon um you see you know i mean the police were called over the last three years several times and social services were on the case a lot 
And what it, why did no. they have to be called? And then she had an affair as soon as he as soon as he died. She had an affair with a married man who was very rich. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah. immediate, immediately when he died, yeah. she was advertising her services on an adult work website. Oh, I don't think I need to say any more, really, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we have got proof of everything. So, um, and also, it wasn't just her. There were other people around him who were unscrupulous. So, no, uh, you know, it was very sad for him at the end, unfortunately. We tried our best, but um, people who coerce, uh, you know, they really get their hooks in. Was it, do you think, I mean, was he, you know, mentally... Uh, no, he was mentally very weak from all oh, 2015. I went with him to the rock and roll fantasy camp. He performed there um, in in L.A. And uh, I went with him. I arranged all that and we traveled there together. And he was so sick there. We went to Stuart Copeland's house and Stuart had to call the medics and they wanted to take him to hospital. And he just kept asking me, where am I? Where am I? Yeah. And uh, because he died with no money because someone else was obviously taking the money um, and they just ne needed him to keep working while they did no work. They were aged 30 something and did no work. And he was nearly 80 and he had to keep going to work to pay the money. Yeah. Otherwise, they said they would leave. So it's a very sad story. Is that is that how you lost? You mentioned you know losing your your mansion. Oh no, that the, the house was lost the first time. I mean, if you read the book, or if you've even seen you know the film, The Where of Mr. Baker, that's got um, you know stuff uh, to say how he lost his money the first time. I mean, he did did it twice, <laughs> and uh, you know he. He just left the country. His second wife was a friend of mine who was a year older than me. So, uh, uh, and then he left the country. He had, again, he'd given power of attorney to a, um, an ex-bank robber mm. who took all his money again. So uh, our mortgage on our house, big house, wasn't being paid. So we all ended up in the street. In 1985, we lost the house. So, so and, mm. Go ahead, Nick. And that's in, that's in my third book, More Tales, that tells you about that. Uh, and Lemmy's son was staying with us at the time, so he got evicted with us. <laughs> Are you friends with any of the other um, cream, I guess, is this is band that sticks, you know, is, is my, you know, when I was growing up, so that's my big band in my head with him. Um, Are you friends with any of the children of, you know, like uh, um, Aruba Red, Natasha, Bruce, or... Um, any of Clapton's kids? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time. We were friendly with them. But, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, we have seen them and, and done things with them. Obviously, we went to Jack's funeral. And, uh, you know, so we have, you know, spent time with them uh, and Margaret, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, we don't know Eric's children because he had them with his, his last wife. So, you know, current wife, rather. So we don't, you know, know them because they're a different age group. But, um you know, we, yeah, I mean, my brother obviously was working with Malcolm Bruce, but um, there's still, you know, we sometimes it's the sort of continuation of the relationship with Jack and my dad is that we sometimes get on with them and we sometimes don't. But, um, you know, Jack was, I got on very well with him. You know, when my mother died, he sent me emails and, uh, you know, I spoke to him quite often before he died via email. So he was a very nice man. Yeah, we interviewed Aruba Red and, and you know, we're asking her about the score because she's a musician. Um, and, and, yeah, uh, she performed at, um, one of the tributes to her dad. She performed. Yeah, it was lovely. But she just mentioned it sounded almost, I don't know, is your dad, you know, he's, they're known in the bands, you know, for these incredible arguments and conflicts and, you know, breaking up, getting back together. But was that all just 
kind of comes with the musical passion or, you know, every, everybody's just, you know, edgy. Well, I mean, as somebody, somebody said in the film, The Where of Mr. Baker, that for, you know, that for people, someone that, that people that didn't get along, you know, they, they worked together a hell of a lot. So um, I think they worked together a lot because obviously people wanted to see two of Cream rather than one. So they were able to probably get more money in working yeah, together. Yeah. Um, but they always fell out. But they, at the end of their lives, they did make up friends. And I've got some very nice emails. I've got some emails from my dad saying, you know, he was really happy with Jack. And he, and uh, Jack did want to speak to my dad when he was mm. um, dying. But unfortunately, he didn't phone him. I wish he had some. Mm. Uh, but... Um, you know, uh, so they had they were on good terms when Jack died, which is which is good. So Ginger had two sisters, Pat and Cheryl, right? No, no, Cheryl is his niece. Oh, I don't know where he's got where he's got that from. He's got one thing. Oh, oh, the internet, so. <laughs> yeah, no, Cheryl's his niece. He's got two nieces and a nephew and one sister. Oh, I see. Yeah, and three of us children. <laughs> Right. How about there's a picture of you online as a punk punker? Now, was that just were you in a punk rock band or what was that? A, no, no, I'm not musical. I was a punk in. Uh, I think when you read the books, you'll understand that there was no star life. So my first book, Tales of a Rock Star's Daughter, is about how we lived a life half normal and half starry, mm. and then how we when we lost money, we just were in the normal world. So by the time I was a punk, I was completely. We were on the dole, so you know we were on state benefit. Yeah, yeah. So we, there was no, I wasn't in a band, and my sister was. She was in a quite a famous punk band called Rebella Ballet, and she played guitar. Mm. And um, and then my brother, obviously, he was always playing the drums. So they were musical, but but I, I you know, people sort of think, did we were we when we, I was a punk? Was I was famous punks? And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> but you went to we clubs, were, you and... know, like. Did your dad, did your dad ever take you on tour with him? Uh, yes, I toured twice with Cream around the States and with Blind Faith uh, around the States and Hawaii. So, yeah, we've got loads and loads of uh, movie footage of that. And uh, we we own the only footage of Cream on tour so, uh, at the time, so uh, which is quite good. So that comes out from time to time on uh, documentaries and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I toured, yeah, all the time when Cream were on the road, yeah. Right. So uh, that's my my next book's going to be a bit more about that. So, are you familiar with, according you know Murray the K? You know he pet yes, the uh, well yeah that's in Hellraiser when he did them. I we didn't go. I wasn't there for the Murray the K show, but he, they did that with a Who. Yeah. Right. And there's some great stories in the book Hellraiser about them when they were all together and uh, they had a really crazy time. So yeah, well worth reading that. One of them, yeah. So Migs and me, we both, Migs and I, we both saw that Murray the K show. I guess that was the first time the Cream ever played in the states, according to Murray the K. Anyhow, yes. Well, I think it was, and yeah, it's really worth reading Hellraiser for the story of that because you know it's better if you read it as he told it in his own words because there's uh, it says some very funny bits in that, and uh, they really had a mental time. The Who and Cream together. You know, people yeah. don't sort of realise how friendly they were with each other. And because, of course, Jack and my dad had already toured with The Who extensively in England as the Graham Bond organisation. Oh, uh -huh. So 
So they knew each other. And also Pete Downsend's dad was a jazz player from the time when my dad was playing jazz and hanging out in Archer Street, bearing in mind he was a bit older than the others. So uh, he also knew uh, Pete Townsend's dad. So he respected them as actual musicians. So the Townsend pair, father and son. So there's a lot in the book, his book, Hellraiser, that's very worth reading. So Jimi Hendrix came to your house, you say? He did indeed, yes. Uh, and that, I mean, my dad talks about that in Hellraiser, and I, I talk about it briefly in my book, More Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter as well. Um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, they were friendly. And Hellraiser has a whole chapter on Hendrix, which details their relationship. But, uh, yeah, he came round one night and, uh, you know, I saw him. Uh, he, I came down and he beckoned me over and I sat on his lap for half an hour. So, yeah, <laughs> very nice man. <laughs> well, so, no, but that you, was normal, you know. I mean, they, had, they were different than their stage personalities, obviously. Well, yes. I mean, and it was normal for people, you know, like that to come to the house. It wasn't mm -hmm. unusual. So, um, but, you know, being children are always quite nosy about who, who's this famous person. But, I mean, he was uh, very, very quiet and, yeah, very nice guy. So, um, you know, I knew he was supposedly famous. But, I, you know, those times it's just like your parents having their friends around. So it wasn't really anything, you know. I mean, the thing for me was that he said, come over and come and sit on my lap and talk to me, which was, you know, so that's obviously why it more stuck in my mind than it probably would have done otherwise. So, And obviously now, now, every, it's a shame no one took a photo. But, I mean, now people just go mad. They can't believe it, you know. And it's, it's a great thing when you're just on a train or something, someone's got a Hendrix T-shirt and you think, I'm probably the only person here that's actually met Hendrix, you know. So, so it's yeah. well, quite a cool thing. Well, speaking of those kind of close encounters, there's one sort of scandalous story from your book, I guess, uh, with uh, George Harrison wanting to buy you, right? Or is that the right term? Um... Yes. Well, actually, <laughs> I just got a very nice message from Patty Boyd, who's just read the book, and she really enjoyed it, so uh, which was great. Uh, and um, yes, um, well, you know, there was a sort of a thing going around there, and you know, I've sort of very much downplayed that story. Yeah, things are very, you know, were very different in the 70s, and, and I sort of, you know, was saying that, you know, obviously they thought it was very exciting to have a girl who was slightly underage, you know, to them mm. that was. Uh, you know, people do get, go mad for St. George, but I'm afraid St. George was a human being like Woody yeah, Hill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, quite a, well, actually, there's, there's so, they probably couldn't get away with she was just 17 today. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you know no, I mean. I mean, you see, you, we're a bit, you know, in England, it's the age of consent 16 here. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. So, so yeah, so we're a little bit, you know, naughtier than you, but... um. Uh, yeah, so at that time I was 15 and that's, you know, when he asked me how old are you and I said 15, then he was like, oh yeah, that's quite interesting. And, and that happened to me a lot, but obviously, you know, my dad was there, but, um, you know, the two girls were, I don't think Patty cared, but the other lady in question was thrilled. <laughs> um, but you know, I was, I thought it was great, but obviously when you're young, you don't realize anything like that. So, um, I had a great time. I thought it was wonderful, but, you know. So do you go to any crazy, like, parties? Do you have any good, like, stories of, like, 
debauchery <laughs> well i mean they are but my debauchery stories are more in my in more tales of a rock star's daughter and they're more really from when i was in my punk days because i was very very innocent when i was you know hanging out with stars or things like that happened you know i was i was you know, in those days in England, you know, well, I don't suppose everywhere in the 70s, a lot of young people in middle-class sort of places were very innocent. I mean, so nothing particularly debauched actually happened to me yeah. uh, until much later. Well, I don't suppose. I mean, like, you know, more Tales of Rock Stars with a lot of drugs, really, and punk stuff, and, you know, it's sort of a bit darker. So, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And there were parties every five minutes. But <laughs> depending on, you know, people that have lived that sort of life at the time, you know, will we'll recognise it. But, yeah, I mean, there are some parties, 70s parties with drug connections. And, you know, mainly most of my books are about parties. <laughs> yeah. People sometimes go, oh, there's too many parties. So if you don't like parties, it's not for you. <laughs> So what does it mean to be a, I was in England, we both been, went to England on our own separate times. I was in England way back in 1965, 66. That was the, the age of the, uh, the the mods and the rockers. They, yeah, they yeah. eventually turned into punks. But uh, so what does it mean to be a punk? You said you're not a musician. So is that just going to clubs and, you know, with spiked hair? No, no, and, a punk, no. Well, it is the looks, but it's, but it's more your attitude, really. I mean... You know, uh, the people that there's a film called She's a Punk Rocker UK, which you can find on YouTube. Oh, okay. Guys, and people, they this band Rubella Ballet, Zilla Minx, she made the film and they've toured the States quite recently and they're going to do She's a Punk Rocker USA as well oh. as the next film. But you can find it online. And I'm in that. I mean, it's Great. a state of mind, really. And I think very much in my two books, Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter and More Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter, I really in detail address that even you know it's more um it's not just silly i go into things like you know it's an ideology some people say oh punk died in 77 and that's it you know it's 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 not really it's an ideology that can live and live so um it's what quite the, important as well so i think it's very important punk so what is the ideology ideology of that well i mean it's just about it's sort of individualism you know and it's also to do with, yeah, it is individualism and it's to do with having, it's no gods, no masters, really. So yeah. it's sort of anarchy, but anarchy not in chaos, but anarchy as in, you know, it's a, like very much a co-op, do it yourself um, and don't listen to the establishment, don't tell the truth to the establishment, don't, don't bow to authority and don't do as you're told. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much. And, you know, think for yourself, which I think is very important. Don't go with the, you know, ask a question all the time. Always ask a question. Always find out what the other side mm. of an argument is. Uh, so I think, yeah, very much that and being very strong. And it was also punk was very the first time that, you know, women were equal. Mm -hmm. And I go into that quite a lot as well in my books. So. Did you did you have a motorcycle or a, one of those souped up? No, no, nothing like that. I mean, it's it's punk. English punk is very different from what you might probably what it was in America. I mean, it's very sort of um, to do with we were sort of like the Bromley contingent, which was Boy George and Susie Sue. They were before us, but they were very similar. And John Savage writes, you know, that the suburbs, suburban punks 
were very much uh, had took the idea and changed it slightly. So uh, I've used all his the quote of his in my second book as well. And he says Bromley, where they came from, and Harrow, where I came from. So it's to do with uh, the sound of the suburbs. Is another great song by the Members, which is sort of sums it up really. And we really were suburban punk, sort of, you know, trying to get away from things that were happening at the time. And also the town centres were being knocked down and they were trying to make things more corporate. So for a time, there was a big time of creativity in the mid-80s. So it's quite interesting because I could have been a punk at the time. But obviously, I wasn't because I was hanging out with the royal family and people like that. So, <laughs> oh, <boy>. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, was in the, I couldn't say that, God save the Queen. So, um, yeah, it, I... I came late. I'm a second wave punk, even I'm the, the right age to be a first wave punk. Yeah. So with with your dad on the road from when you're you were you know and you know in the early '60s, whatever you know, your dad was getting popular and famous on the road. Who was who, who was there a disciplinarian at home, or did, I mean, was there anybody that to, to, to kind of you know try to tell you you know the right path? No. There was no, but no. no, 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 it wasn't like that. I mean, and the, the books really, really address that, I think, quite strongly how it was very chaotic upbringing. I mean, you know, mm. when we started off, I mean, even when Cream, we didn't move, Cream split up in November 68, but we didn't move out of a maisonette where I shared a bedroom with my parents until the summer of 1968. So mm. we were in a tiny little place. And then I went from a state school to a posh, posh school, which, you know, was this incredible jump. Mm. And then the marriage was horrifically violent. And, of course, by the time we got to a big house where my dad was, you know, having sex with 10 million groupies every five minutes and affairs, and my mother completely came unglued. So the house was like the worst sort of what could happen in a... I don't know, in a project house, you you lot would understand, you know, mm. that sort of a state. That, that was happening within a rich house, you know. Uh, so it was really horrific, suicide attempts, drugs, incredible fighting. So, oh. and then I had two younger siblings who I'd sort of had to look after. So, and my dad was very scary. So if he didn't like what you were doing, you would get whacked. Oh. Uh, both of them hit us, but... Um, oh. Not so bad with that, but I mean, it was pretty scary. Although when I became a teenager, obviously I became very friendly with my dad and spent, hmm. you know, from say 1975 to 1982, we were inseparable. So obviously that tale of a rock star's daughter um, covers the time where I did everything with my dad. You know, people used to invite us to things together. So, you know, all the invitations were off too. So, um, so what you know, so it was... I mean, where'd you get the strength... Um, to go through all that chaos and violence. And, I don't know. I mean, no, but what pulled you through? Some people don't get through it. You know, some people just go over the edge. How did, what, what do you think got you through all that? I've got no idea. I just think, you know, you're just born with the personality you're born with. I mean, when I was very small and my parents were arguing really loudly, it was quite distressing. But I sort of invented... Um, another world for myself, really, which was always very optimistic, you know, a fantasy life of, you know fun and stuff like that and I think that's how I did it really I sort of blocked it out and became resilient that resilient that you know it didn't affect me too badly I mean I think it definitely did because I had a lot of problems at school with you know tantrums and you know I've had terrible you know I can't have relationships I'm absolutely hopeless so you know it has had a knock-on effect but um 
you know, yeah, I've survived to become relatively normal, I suppose. Some people say, when I used to hang out with my parents, you know, in the polo years of that, people used to say, oh, God, you're so sensible compared to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, and what led you to, uh, have you written other things? I mean, you're obviously an accomplished writer. So have, have, have you been asked by other, uh, not necessarily celebrities, but anybody to, to ghostwrite or help, or, or have you had offers to write biographies for other pe- of other people? Well, I'd like to do that, but, um, you know, I have sort of said, you know, I think they should all have had me because I think I'm a pretty good ghostwriter. I mean, everyone that's read Hellraiser has said, oh, it's, we can hear him speak. Mm. And so my, you can't hear me, me in it at all. So I think that's, a, you know, that mm. is a great compliment. Um, but, um, no, I mean, I am writing some other things that, you know, they take a while. I've got a few things in the pipeline, and now my publishers have said that they might be interested in a thing that's not music-related. So there are a few things, other things I'd like to do. But, you know, writing's quite, you know, solitary, so, and it takes ages. So, I mean, I've got say three things on the go at the moment that we'll probably get there eventually but and it's good to have as many books out as you can because it adds to because you only you don't hardly make any money unless you that's why I you know advertise them all the time I've kept Hellraiser in print so eventually you know they they do sort of boost up and then hopefully you know what I want is someone to think oh that would be a good tv series or a tv film or something like and I do get people saying that it would so you know you never know your luck really so that's you know you can't you know I've got a normal job where I you know I work in a bar a local bar so I don't you know I'm not rich so (laughs) you have to keep as much stuff coming in as you can so yeah, it sounds like a, a couple of those books would make really great films. Um, has your your publisher ever sent them out to, you know, agents or production companies? And It doesn't work like that. I mean, it's really hard to get. I mean, it's really, really hard. It's really who you know, and it, you just have to keep going. I mean, it was great. You know, it's like Stuart Copeland, you know, he read my first book and said, you know, it melted his nightstand, which I thought was quite nice of him. He emailed me. Hmm. Um uh, Marcella Detroit, she posted up that she absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, and now Patty's done it. It's, you know, you have to get it noticed by people who might say they're well, or, you know, they might then say to somebody, oh, have you read this? This is really good. And they might be someone who's influential. That's the only way. There's no other way of doing it. I mean, it's just not easy. Right, right. So, so, I mean, most people that do TV series and stuff like that, I've been, I mean, even Rupert Everett, who wanted to do the Oscar Wilde film, The Happy Prince, I mean, that took him 10 years to get the mm-hmm. money to do that. Right. This, this, in one of your interviews, there's something I relate to on a personal level that was so funny to me because I, you know, Trey, my brother, uh, is, was a drummer from the, I don't know, age of eight, I think. And I'm, yeah. I, is that when you started drumming, Trey? Uh, 12 and a half. What? 12 and a half. 12 and, oh, okay, I thought it was earlier. But anyway, you, you mentioned, um, Nettie, you talked about growing up and hearing your father practicing on a practice pad and doing paradiddle. Oh, no, maybe your brother said he had to do paradiddles for like yeah. hours on end. And that's what I grew up with. I'm not a musician, but I, hours and hours of listening to this uh, on a practice Well, pad. no, with him, yeah, he did. He had, a, you know, he had a practice pad and he would do that. But I, I think the worst thing was because, you know, my bedroom, well, I shared the bedroom with them, but they would be in the living room and the record player was by the wall and it was, there were two C drummers. Oh my <laughs> God, that's all I ever heard. Yeah. So, 
you know, it's like these are like, I mean, it's like the cream formed their first ever jam together. The three of them was in our front room, in our oh, living room. Wow. And I was at school and came back and, you know, they'd been playing and they were like, wow. They looked out the window and all the kids from the fields out the back were dancing. And they thought that's when Eric said, man, we're the cream. And that's how the name came. And, uh, you know, but I come in from school and there's all these people and they just think, oh, go away. I want me tea. You know, you, you don't, it doesn't mean the same thing to you. <laughs> you know, maybe someone could come in from the future and go, you know what, this is, you know, quite important but you have no idea as a child do you you just want to do what you want to do you're inter interested in your own life and although I did you know I really liked Jack when I first met him and then I supplanted him with Eric I decided I liked Eric better when Eric came along and Jack later quite recently before he died he said to me yes and I've never forgiven you for that <laughs> and uh, we really laughed a lot about it so yeah I mean it was um yeah, very interesting time. Well, thing to grow up with, and I think because it's so vivid, that's why you remember it. But it was chaotic. It wasn't a calm childhood, and I think children do actually long for things to be normal. Mm. So I, I think I did actually. I was watching on YouTube um, some. I mean, they've been sending me on Facebook cream videos for, for like months now, and one of the ones they sent me anything that related to. Uh, and whoever was in cream. And so they sent me this thing with, with Ginger in the Grand Bond organization with Ginger and Jack, and they're on a TV show. It's very campy. It's like late 60s. Ginger's wearing sunglasses. It's like they're beatniks or something. No, it's a film. It's a film, and it's called Gonks Go Beat. You can buy it on Amazon. Oh, what's it called? It's Gonks Go Beat. Oh. Goats Go Beat. And it's a, it's a crazy, uh, and there's a lot of other very famous, uh, you just Google it and they will tell you the lineup. There's some also some other famous 60s musicians in that as well. And you can, you can either download it or you can probably buy it on Amazon sure. or whatever you've got. You can get hold of it. I know you can get hold of it here. People are getting hold of it. It's quite, it's a cult film from the 60s and, uh, yeah, it's the only other colour film of them together. And it's a terrible film, but, I mean, it's great for that footage. And there's a drum battle in it as well. So oh. if you're getting stuff from the guys from Music of Cream, they actually know zero about anything, but they've managed to somehow, and they've stolen some of our stuff as well. So they send me round the bend because, it's you know, people need to go to our website, which is gingerbaker.com, and our social media through that, which is run by the family because, you know, and our press archives on there and our history archives on there. We were there, so we know what yeah. actually happened. But you tend to get people who, you know, just, you know, they'll send you something and you don't, they don't know what it is either. So <laughs> I sure. can tell you what it is and sure. it's that. Well, that's good to get out. Gingerbakercom is worth repeating. So, you know, yeah. so, you know, people know where to go. And the books and are available on Amazon, I assume, right? Well, they're all on Amazon, and I think you can order them on any, um, you know, just type the title into the search engine. But um, also, Weimar UK has got all of them, and they will ship worldwide, and they convert currency automatically. And they're really helpful as well. You could email them. So they're called Weimar, W-Y-M-E-R UK. Oh. And they, they, all the books are also available from them. So if you have any trouble, you can get them from them, and they will ship wherever you are. Oh, good to know. Well, great. Well, we encourage people to do that. Um, anything? Well, no, I, I don't know. The only I did have one. It's uh, out of uh, context. So, of all the 
a rock musicians out there that you know your dad played through through the decades did he have any like best buddies pals well i think he says in you know when he did the dedication for his book hellraiser obviously was in 2008 and he did mention you know he the dedication was to people he had lost so there were people that had already died and uh, obviously, the main, you know, his influences were Art Blakey, Max Roach, Elvin Jones, Phil Seaman, all of whom he became friendly with and worked with, who he really admired. Um, Jimi Hendrix was a close friend. Keith Moon was a close friend. John Bonham, which people don't realise. And I put a thing on my Facebook page recently where John Bonham actually rated my dad very highly, especially with the GBO. So, uh, yeah, so in his dedication in Hellraiser, he tells you really who some very close friends were that he lost. I mean, Keith Moon, he was very friendly with him, and he has a good story, some very good stories about him and John Bonham. So, uh, yeah, he was close to the, and of course, Ringo Starr, who's still alive, is a, is a very close friend. And Eric Clapton was his best friend. Uh, the two that were there for him at the end was Eric Clapton and Charlie Watts. So mm. they were friends to the friends to the end. Well, I'm glad I asked the questions. Yeah. Wow, it's fascinating. Well, thanks um, for coming. And up. also the, the the eulogies he got from people like Brian Wilson was amazing. Uh, Nick Jagger, Paul McCartney, and I, you know people had said, oh well, you he slagged them off. But I think they knew. You see, the thing is, about English people as well. Also, we've got a thing we call bants which means we slag each other off. We insult uh -huh. each other, but it means you're being friendly. Sure. So I think, you know, I mean, my dad knew the Beatles early, early. I remember he was hanging out with the Beatles when I, you know, when he was in Grand Bomb, so early. Mm. Um, 65, 66, so. Right. Uh, you know, he, so he knew them all really, really well. Um, obviously, he was friendly with Brian Jones. Uh, and he recommended Charlie Watts for the Stones. So, you know, he was integrally involved with those people and they all respected him. So I think, you know, he didn't, it was later musicians. I mean, he had a fight with someone from Lords of the New Church. And like <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like anything, although he ended up working for John Lydon, but he didn't like punk. But no. obviously the fact he worked for John Lydon helped me because then, I went to a John Lydon gig a couple of years ago and then I said, oh, who I was. And we got in the dressing room. I was absolutely thrilled. He was so nice. He was uh -huh. so nice. So, I mean, that to me was a big thing. So, and Elton John, the two famous people that I, when I met Elton John, I was absolutely thrilled because I'm a big Elton fan. So, slightly different music. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for coming on the show. It was really fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. I hope I uh, told you some things that, you know. <laughs> well, we want to get the <laughs> word out. That would be out. helpful. Yeah, and we yeah, we'll encourage everyone to, to look at, go to WeimarUK.com, is it? And, or Amazon? WeimarUK.co.uk, I think there, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, you can get them all there. I mean, you can just, any of the titles, type them into the search sure. engine, and you should be able to get them. I mean, you should, someone said that Barnes & Noble wouldn't order one of them in, but I think they will. They will. Um, but, you know, Wherever you are, you know, in the world, just, you know, check it. But Weimar will send anything wherever you are in the world and they will convert the currency for you. But you can email them as well and say, help me. I don't understand what's going on and they will help you. So they're also very good like that. Terrific. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Terrific. Bye. All right. Well, lovely to, lovely to talk to you. Great meeting you. Thanks. Yeah. All right, then. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 
Bye. Okay. Oops.